Uh, I, I've mentioned to you on a couple of occasions over the past month, I think, uh, I've mentioned to you a book written by a Puritan pastor named Thomas Brooks. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And uh, the author of this book, uh, Pastor Brooks, he, he wrote the book out of a conviction, as he puts it in the preface of the book, that it is his work, he says. He says, it is my work as a Christian to do my best to discover the fullness of Christ, the emptiness of the creature, and the snares of the great deceiver. And I wonder if that strikes you Christians who are gathered here this morning as a little bit odd. Is it, you know, is this, uh, those, those Puritans, you know, they were like drinking different water than we are here today. He, he considered it his work. And he said very clearly, not his work as a pastor, but it's the work of Christians to discover the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the creature and the snares of the great deceiver. Thomas Brooks understood that one of the most sobering facts about life is that all humans have a supernatural enemy whose aim is to use both pain and pleasure to make us blind and foolish and miserable and to do so forever. Uh, the Bible calls him the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser, the ruler of this world, the God of this age. And we are called in the scriptures to be vigilant against him. And so that's why Thomas Brooks would exhort Christians and say it is their calling to do our best to discover the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the creature and the snares of the great deceiver. Thomas Brooks was driven, I believe, by the Bible in this conviction. I think that burden comes straight from the Apostle Paul, whose call to war against these evil spiritual powers uh, we're considering in these weeks together this fall as we study this portion of scripture that Frank just read aloud to us. Over the past two Sundays, we have considered uh, verses 10 and 11. We're just going very slowly through this paragraph because though Thomas Brooks regarded it to be a basic part of his life as a Christian, I think we may be uh, ignorant in these ways. I think the enemy may have lulled us into sleep and we may be inebriated perhaps with the pleasures of this world or maybe exhausted by the pains of this world that we don't give this spiritual war much of a thought. And so I'm not, we're not just taking one week to cover this passage, but we're taking 11 weeks to consider that portion of scripture that Frank read to us. We've considered verses 10 and 11 in the past couple of weeks. And this morning we come to verse 12. Uh, look at it again with me. We do not wrestle, Paul says, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this is a pretty serious war. Uh, Not only do we have an invisible, personal, extremely powerful, intelligent, wicked, deceptive enemy who is scheming to do us harm. He's called the devil, right? We're to withstand his schemes in verse 11. Not only do we have this very wicked, cruel enemy, but he is allied, we're told in verse 12, by a very large army of invisible spirits joining with him to aid him in the pursuit of our ruin. Now to help us think about this verse, verse 12, I want to just give you a sentence. I know it's just a sentence that we're looking at, but I'm going to give you a summary sentence and then we'll just talk about it for the duration of our time. And I think the summary goes like this. As Christians, we wage war against a dangerous but defeated foe. As Christians, we wage war against a dangerous but defeated foe. We, Christians, are engaged in this battle. Do you see the word we there in verse 12? So Paul is including himself in this battle, but it is not only as though Paul himself is engaged in this war. He says to the Christians, to the recipients of this letter who are the saints, the excellent ones. Thank you, Frank. I love that verse in Psalm 16:3. The excellent ones in whom is all our delight. He calls the saints in Ephesus, all believers in Christ, to engage in this war. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but the clear implication is that we do wrestle, we are engaged in combat with the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil. And the the, the commentators who know something about the language and the, the culture, the history of the times, point out that this particular word here that's translated wrestling or wrestle or it might say struggle in your translation of the Bible, that this word is used to describe the closeness of the combat. We're talking about in your face, hand to hand combat. We're not talking about the firing of computer guided missiles from a distance. No, you you may be able to dodge an arrow that is shot from a distance, but when the enemy actually has hold of you, you must either resist manfully or fall shamefully at his feet, says another Puritan pastor by the name of William Gurnall. That's the kind of war we are engaged in. Now I have more to say about this war. We could spend the next 20 minutes simply talking about the fact that Christians are to be engaged, that we are engaged in war. I hope to say a little bit more about that next week. But for now, we can consider the intensity of that war, the seriousness of that war, by considering that this adversary that we are at war with is an unseen adversary. We're engaged in hand-to-hand combat, close-quarter combat with an enemy that we can't see, even though he sees us. 
We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. So not physical beings that we can see with our eyes or or touch, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now we, we need not and we ought not to take this, this negation here. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We ought not to take that in an absolute sense as if there is no wrestling at all with the flesh and blood. We know that's not the case. We know Paul has warned the Ephesians already in chapter four of human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. We know Paul tells us in Romans eight that we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So killing the enemy within us, that obstinate traitor, even for us and our lives as Christians, that flesh warring against us, we are called to wage that war. But Paul's point here is that the Christian life as a whole is a profound spiritual warfare of cosmic proportions in which the ultimate and overarching opposition to the advance of the gospel and to the maturing of God's people into the image of Christ springs from evil supernatural powers who are under the control of the devil. The point of him saying this is that there's more going on in those struggles. Your battles with anger, your battles with jealousy and impatience and greed and lust, there's more going on. Oh yeah, there's a war against flesh. There's a war against the sin nature. But the point is, there's more going on in those wars than maybe you are giving thought to. There's more going on than meets the eye. And it's because these foes are not merely flesh and blood that we need the kind of divine empowering that Paul has already commended to us in this passage. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. We have a dangerous, unseen enemy and a great army who are opposed to us. And I thought to myself, what could I say here? How could I help us? I mean, we could look at the words themselves, rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers, and run around the Bible and look at what is said about these particular phrases. But I thought I might just give you a picture of how malicious and how destructive and how dehumanizing these spiritual forces of evil are by just simply looking at the ministry of Jesus and looking at how he was engaged in confronting these spiritual forces of evil. And so uh, you can just listen if you'd like, or if you want to turn in your Bible, I'm going to read to you a few verses from Mark chapter 5, where we see Jesus coming into very close quarters with this spiritual enemy. We're told in Mark chapter 5, Jesus and his disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. 
no one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Brothers and sisters, this man is a terrifying portrait. I mean, this is horrible to consider. We're told here that this man, under demonic forces, that that phrase, unclean spirit, you can see in verse 15, if your Bible is open there to Mark 5, it's clearly speaking about a demonic host. This man was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But this demonic host inside of him was so strong, they would break the bonds. He was uncontrollable, untamable. Human strength and resources were no match for these cosmic powers. And we can see them wielding that power to destroy and just ruin this man's life. I mean, the picture that we get of this man's life is simply pathetic. He's been relegated to living amongst the dead. Even chains and shackles cannot control him. Night and day, he's crying out. He's cutting himself with rocks. We're told in one of the other accounts where uh, this story is described, I believe it's in Matthew's gospel, he's ripping off his clothes. Uh, He has become, for all intents and purposes, a beast, not a man. These are the spirit. You want to know how serious this battle is that we're engaged in. This is how the enemy operates. This is the power and the destructive nature of his strength. But what is even more sobering than that? If that is not sobering enough, what is even more sobering, at least as I think about it, is that these spiritual forces of evil that are active among us, that wielded such destructive and dehumanizing power as it's evident there in Mark 5, they are still working among us, but they are working among us in a much more subtle and crafty and scheming kind of way. And so if you're sitting here listening to what I'm saying so far and even hearing that story in Mark's gospel and thinking, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I, I think people who would make up stories like that, I think that's just fanciful. I don't think there's any proof. I don't know that I've never seen anything like that. That's not an argument for you to take this thing lightly. That's actually a reason that you should be all the more sober in your assessment. Because what I think that means is that the kind of oppression that we see in Mark 5, we see it depicted very vividly, the power and the hateful character of our enemy. But what we learn from Mark 5 and what we learn from this passage in Ephesians is that the, the primary tactic that our enemy is employing now is much more subtle. It flies much more under the radar. How do I know that? Well, what is it that we're do? What is it that we're to do? How are we to wage war against these evil powers? Again, we'll be talking about these uh, verses in detail in the weeks to come, but we're called to fight. Not by, not by doing what Jesus does and it's almighty power and it's to the glory of Jesus' name as we sang. The enemy, he has to leave at the sound of Jesus' great name. But we're not commanded in the scriptures to get before some kind of demon-possessed man and say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, be gone. We're not called to that kind of ministry. 
Now, I know some of you are going to email me or ask me after this. I'm not saying such a thing doesn't ever happen anywhere in the world. I'm not saying that thing does not happen at all anymore. But what we're called to do is to fight in a much more subtle way. We're to fight with truth. We're to fight with righteousness and the gospel of peace and faith and salvation and the word of God. These, these evil powers are still exerting their great power to destroy and to dehumanize, but they're doing so in a manner that is not as obvious for us to detect. What does Paul say in his other great armor passage? I, don't, I think I was going to say this last week and I didn't because I wanted to save it for today, but there's another great armor passage. You'll hear the similarities in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. This sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to what we're looking at in Ephesians 6. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, now here's what we need to destroy. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Where, where is the battle raging, Paul says? Where your thoughts are. What are the strongholds that spiritually imprison people? Arguments. Opinions. Lofty opinions. And arguments, as one author has put it, arguments are not merely strongholds. They are weapons of mass destruction. Adam and Eve and all of us in them fell because of an argument. Right? You know the story in Genesis chapter 3. The devil, when he first came, he did not come harassing them. He did not come oppressing them. They were not possessed by him. He made an argument to them. God, ha God hasn't really said that, has he? I mean, I mean, really, if he's out for your good, why, the fruit you see is good. Why would he keep that from you? It was an argument. And Adam and Eve believed the serpent's argument and they stopped believing in God to their destruction. That's the deadly essence of sin. It's not believing God. To not believe in God is to ally with Satan, whom Jesus said is a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. So we are waging war against evil forces of spiritual wickedness but they're being played out by arguments and opinions and ideas. Paul says to the Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He tells them not to be deluded with plausible arguments that are being propagated by the elemental spirits of the world. So do not be deluded, brothers and sisters. Do not think that these schemes are less destructive because they're not as obvious to our physical eyes. 
the spiritual forces of evil wreak havoc in the world. They are wreaking havoc in this nation with plausible arguments and lofty opinions and empty philosophy. Like covering up, if I could say something provocative outside, like covering up the willful murder of innocent human babies under the language of women's reproductive health. What kind of moron is going to say that they oppose women's reproductive health? I want the entire community of Pittman to know I support women's reproductive health. But when women's reproductive health is the language by which we justify and support and celebrate the taking of innocent human beings, that is demonic. That is demonic. And we could just run through every other cultural slogan right now that is out there. We could run through love is love. We could run through gay rights are civil rights. We could run through it all. Parents, if I could just exhort you to a moment to something that I'm not thinking I'm doing particularly well in, but I was sobered by it in my reading this week. It is our calling as parents to see to it that no one takes captive our children with this kind of empty deceit and this kind of lofty opinions that are propagated, whether it be by political systems or by corrupt media or greedy Hollywood industries. We are to see to it that our young people are not taken captive by these deceitful philosophies. We are trying to help you, actually. Jeff is teaching a class right now to our young people. They're actually looking at some of these slogans and, and trying to apply. This is how it is against the knowledge of God. This is how we can take captive these thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. Jeff, you did not realize probably when you took up this class that you were engaged in preparing soldiers for battle, but that is what we're doing. And it's a good work. So young people, I mean, teenage, that's a sixth through 12th grade. Uh, go next Sunday. This is what they're doing in the youth Sunday school class. Talking about ideas and opinions that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. It may be that one of the reasons why we see these portraits of exorcisms in the Gospels, even though they're not ordinarily a part of our experience in everyday life, is just to peel back the curtain on these spiritual forces of evil so that we are awakened to how destructive and how dehumanizing the powers of darkness really are, even in those subtle ways that they're, work, um, uh, that they're at work among us. And we know that those powers are not just out there in the culture, right? They're spiritual forces of evil. They're cosmic powers over the present darkness. And we know that that darkness isn't just out there, right? The word of God says judgment begins with the household of God. And so we need to examine our own lives for any traces of darkness. Because where there is darkness, there is the demonic. And so Paul has already written, when he says there's cosmic powers over the present darkness, I think his readers would have already uh, been thinking about the darkness that he'd already mentioned to them back in chapter 5. Listen to chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality. Let's not talk about out there. 
Let's talk about right here among God's people because that's who Paul is addressing in Ephesians chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. Who would be the author of all deception? Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so Paul exhorts the Romans to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. And then what are some of those works of darkness? He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Did you think you got a pass when I just said orgies and drunkenness and then saw right there the sentence finishes in quarreling and jealousy? This is how the spiritual forces of wickedness would seek to do us harm and destroy us. Because you've never seen a demon-possessed man cutting himself with stones, do not think it isn't happening around you. The next time you're tempted to anger, Ephesians 4.27 says clearly, when you're given to anger, you are giving the devil a foothold. The next time you're tempted to jealousy or indulging in sexual immorality or foolish talk or crude joking or covetousness or any kind of impurity or sensuality, whether it be in thought or in word or in action or in clothing, remember, would you remember when you find temptations in these ways, remember this pitiful, pathetic demoniac in Mark chapter 5 and shudder in disgust at the schemes of our enemy and how he would be seeking to destroy you. Do not just pout about your weaknesses or your temptations. Don't just wallow or fret about them, about that sin that so easily entangles or those rebellious thoughts that still need to be subjected. Don't give up. Don't say it's no use. Don't say it's just the way you are. Make war, beloved. Stand firm, lest the darkness consume you. And I want you to believe, saints, that when I call you to that, when I call you to standing firm and to making war, that you can do that if you're in Christ. You can do that, believers. That's not just pious preacher talk. You can do that because these dangerous and dreadful spiritual forces of wickedness are defeated foes through the Lord Jesus. Can you just imagine for a moment a world with no light? Like, this is a nice day. It's a gorgeous day, isn't it? But just imagine a world with no light at all. How fruitful, how, how successful, how satisfying a life would be possible in complete darkness. If you're, if you're here visiting among us and you are maybe not considering yourself a follower of Jesus, maybe you're just checking things out, I understand this is a very uh, woe kind of a Sunday to be visiting among us. 
But would you just consider what it would be like? How fruitful, how satisfying, how fulfilled and happy a life could you live in utter and complete darkness? No lamps, no iPhones, no glow from a fire, no sun, no moon, therefore to reflect any light, no small radiated light coming from stars in the sky. It's not possible. It would be inevitable destruction and ruin and chaos if there was no light at all. Well, the word of God says that's how people are because of our sin. That's how the whole world is. It's like trying to feel our way around and find life in the midst of blinding darkness. And yet for those of us who are in darkness and those of us who know ourselves to be in darkness, oh, there is great hope. Because we are told of the ministry of the Messiah, the ministry of the Lord Jesus. At the very beginning of his ministry, Matthew puts it like this, right before he engages in his public ministry. He says, Matthew 4, 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Oh, there is light to be found in Jesus. You once were darkness, Paul told the Ephesians, but now you are light in the Lord. Light in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is possible because of what Jesus did against the spiritual forces of wickedness. He said to the Colossians, you, you who were dead in your trespasses, You who were dead in breaking God's law. You who were dead in disobeying God's commandments. You who were darkened in your understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in you due to your hardness of heart. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You go ahead and put down on a list. How how large would the stack of paper be? If you were to put down every sin, every time you have dishonored and mistrusted the word of God, whether in thought or word or deed or attitude or impulse, every time, think of it all recorded on in a notebook. How vast would that notebook be? And the Bible says that Jesus, when he came to shine the light of the world into this present darkness, he hung on a cross and in love, he took that record of your debt and he graciously allowed it to be nailed to the palm of his hands so that all of those legal demands, all that judgment and damnation and darkness that was due to us eternally would be taken upon Christ so that we would be forgiven. All that record of debt was nailed to the cross. And God's word says in Colossians 2 that in doing that, he, this is really good news for our spiritual warfare, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, we, we are the people of triumph. Who, who, what, which people are they? They're the ones who are united to Jesus. Paul has addressed those words in Colossians 2 to those who were buried with him in baptism. 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. If you are here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus, why would you go about living your life in total and complete darkness when such a gracious and kind and loving Savior has held himself out to shine light into the darkness of your sin and the damnation that you deserve? Oh, I understand these are hard words now to hear, but I would much prefer you hear hard words now and be sobered into repentance and faith than for you to walk on comfortably towards everlasting darkness, which is the wages of sin. Oh, hear the gracious call of our Savior and put your trust in the Lord Jesus today. If you don't understand what it would mean to do that, please, I, I know I'm yelling a lot, but I will speak to you very gingerly and tenderly if you come to me afterwards, or you could talk to anybody around you. This is so urgent. I know most of you have believed you are united with Jesus in his death. And because you're united with him in his death, his death counts as your punishment. And because you are united with him in his resurrection, his resurrection is your triumph over sin and all the rulers and authorities and powers over this present darkness. Oh, praise God that in this warfare which we engage in, the outcome is not dependent upon us, but on Jesus. And we know that he has prevailed because of his triumph over the grave. Paul wanted the Ephesians. He wants you to remember that. That though you are waging war, you are warring against a defeated foe. Because I can be assured that when Paul wrote of this rulers and authorities that we are doing battle with, he expected the Ephesians to already be remembering the way that he had prayed for them back in chapter one. Go look there at chapter one, briefly. I, I, we go there, I've been there already in this series, but I don't think you can go here too often. He prayed for the Ephesians. He wants you to know this. He wants you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now listen to this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Oh, this, the Lord Jesus has triumphed. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's triumphed over them. He has been exalted over every conceivable authority for all time right now. 1 Peter 3.21 says he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And so we are engaged in battle, Christian brothers and sisters, but our foe has been defeated. What great confidence this gives that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and that we are, as it says in 1 John 2, did you forget about this word from a few Sundays ago? You are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. That isn't true because you're so strong, but it's true because you are united in Jesus. You are with Christ. You are raised with Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. How could these spiritual forces who've been subjected, how could they destroy you when you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places and all those authorities and powers have been subjected to him? Oh, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
And that does not mean that we get lazy, beloved. I'm almost done, but we got childcare today. They're like, oh dear. No, I'm almost done, I promise. Well, it means we, don't, we, we, we are in battle. The, the enemy has been defeated, but we're still fighting on. We're not to be lazy. We're not to be complacent. There is a real battle raging on. He, this disarming, this subjecting does not mean that the devil is incapable of inflicting any momentary suffering upon us. He is capable of that. But he cannot steal or kill or destroy the final glory that is ours in Christ. He cannot damn us, but he can still do some damage to us. And so we must fight. He can keep you from kingdom work. He could rob you of your joy in Christ. He could tempt you and he could distract you from your focus upon Jesus. He can provoke you to sin. He can confuse you with false doctrine and keep you from rejoicing in the truth. He can, he can deceive you and intimidate you and bring a wave of persecution or suffering upon you and tempt you to lose heart and conform your way to the pattern of this world. He can promise prosperity and power and so ensnare people uh, so that they pierce themselves with many pangs. He can lure us with the fleeting pleasures of sin to stray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So we do have to battle. That's why we take up the whole armor of God to stand against this dangerous but defeated foe for those who, who belong to Christ. I think J.I. Packer says it very well. We should detest Satan, but not dread him. Since God now provides us with all-purpose combat for use against him. At one time, beloved, you were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. And so what does Paul say? Walk as children of light. That's how, that's how we live out this restored identity as image bearers of the Lord Jesus who has been highly exalted over every rule and authority and power and dominion both in this age and in the age to come. We walk now as children of light. We demolish arguments and strongholds and every lofty opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. We have the power in Christ. The weapons of our warfare has divine power, it says in 2 Corinthians 10. We have divine power to destroy the works of the devil in Christ. We have divine power to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. We have divine power, husbands, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We have power, wives, to honor our husbands and to submit to them as to the Lord. We have power to bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We have divine power to look carefully how we walk, making the best use of the time. We have divine power to have no filthiness or crude joking or foolish talk be named among us. We have divine power to say no to sexual immorality and impurity and all covetousness and to being drunk with wine because we can be filled with the Spirit. I could go on, but you're wondering when I'm going to finish. Oh, we have divine power, beloved. We wage war against a dangerous but defeated foe. We have in Christ Satan stopping, death conquering power at work in you. 
Oh, believe that as you enter into this battle. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What a sure word it is and what a clear call we have. Jesus has not failed and he will not allow his people to fall. He will hold us fast. Christ is the power. Christ is the battle. Christ is the weaponry. And his shall be the praise. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for how we have failed to be mindful of the war waging around us. Forgive us for how complacent we have been to toy with opinions and arguments and thoughts that would be contrary to the knowledge of you and the Lordship of Christ. Help us to be aware of this enemy around us. Help us to not be afraid of him, but help us to be vigilant in waging war against him with the armory, the weaponry that you have given us in Christ. And when we feel weak, when we feel fragile, when we feel vulnerable, we just strengthen our souls with this rich truth that we're going to sing now, that you will not let our souls be lost but your promises will last because they have been bought at such a precious price. You will hold us fast. Help us to believe it and help us to live in light of it. We ask for this all in Jesus' name, amen. Did I say I love you? I love you. If I didn't say it, I love you. <laughs>